Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the Apex Vaulting Podcast. Um, as always, thanks for listening. Um, super pumped to, with the response that I get back from everybody. Um, glad you're loving it. And if you ever have any comments or questions about the podcast or things you'd like us to talk about, um, make sure to email us at apexvaulting.com. Also check out our website. Um, we obviously run sessions all year round if you're lucky enough to be in the North Jersey area. Um, come check out our club. Also, this July 20th, we have our annual Northeast Pole Vault Club Championships. Even if you're not part of a pole vaulting club, even if you're not from the Northeast and you'd love to check out our meet, by all means, check it out. Sign up on our website. Uh, Sign-ups are up right now. You can go on our website, onto our store, and you can register for the meet. Um, so now... Um, Let's start the podcast. Uh, this is episode 60. Uh, we have Pete Roach on the podcast, and uh, we're actually driving to Swarthmore College right now. Uh, we're doing this in the car. Um, I, I promise you I'm driving safely. Um, Sorry, right, I'm holding the laptop. <laughs> um, Pete has been jumping at the club for a couple years now. Um, Pete, why don't, why don't you go through your story? Like, How did you start pole vaulting in high school? Because I think you have a very similar story to like most... Uh, Walters, um, and kind of take us through your journey through college and how you ended up at the club. So I actually started off as a distance runner. I did cross country in middle school, and uh, my in Indiana, I'm from Indiana, which is a bit different than uh, some states. There's no pole vaults in middle school. Yeah, same thing in Jersey. And uh, yeah, so I did like hurdles and some distance races when it came to middle school track and when I got to high school did cross country didn't really like it you know distance running is hard <laughs> and it's just pain not yeah. really fun <laughs> well yeah I mean you know and, and we're gonna talk more on this subject as, as we go along and I'm, I'm uh, you know after you finish talking about your journey through track but it's funny I think a lot of people get drawn to track because you know nobody gets cut you're able to join the team you know, everybody can try it. But you know what? Not everybody wants to be a distance runner. And track actually is a sport that has so many different disciplines. You know, it's like, just like football. Not everybody can be a quarterback. Not everybody can be a wide receiver. There's other positions out there. And, you know, in track, I mean, obviously, I think even the people listening to this podcast have a biased opinion. But pole vaulting is amazing. It's such a fun, fun event. I mean, I, you always have to almost make people stop practicing. You know what I mean? You always want to take another jump. You always want to take take another rep. Whereas I, I don't see too many people dying to take another 400-meter sprint or go on another fart lick. <laughs> oh, you know? yeah, another, <laughs> another mild repeat or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So when the track season came around my freshman year of high school, I just I like saw that pole vaulting was an option, and I thought, uh, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I grew up um, like with one of those big trampolines in my backyard. And I could, I could, like, hit a double front flip, um, you know, spent a lot of time on that, did a lot of wakeboarding, uh, some, uh, some water skiing and uh, snow skiing. And yeah, just so you, like, kind of extreme. Yeah, sports, yeah, did, know? like, rollerblading, skateboarding. So I just, I kind of viewed pole vaulting as, like, that seems like the most extreme sport I could do for my high school. And like you can kind of fly so it's yeah, why, yeah. why not give it a shot and, right, right. and I I was naive and I thought I could like pole vault continue to do hurdles and then also do distance races <laughs> at yeah. the at all, all during the same time but my thankfully my high school track coach Adam Homo who is an awesome guy he just said just just go do pole vault and you know, if it doesn't work out, we'll circle back and, and see. Yeah, yeah, see if we can change something. And uh, I ended up clearing nine six freshman year. Wow, that is wrong. And everyone knew at that <laughs> moment that you'd be a seventeen nine guy. <laughs> but that was that was I, I never bent the pole freshman year um, until like after the dual meets ended. Right. And, right. And then I just kept practicing with uh, the guys who would. Who, like qualified for the the state competition stuff, mm-hmm. um, and then one one day of practice, I just decided to grip up okay. and like 
we didn't we had coaches coming in and out but like no one right. no one was really there every single practice yeah, so it was, yeah, yeah. Um, but my high school was lucky enough to have a lot of poles to choose from okay and I just gripped up like a couple feet moved my step accordingly and I was like you know what I'm, I'm going for it today I'm going to try oh, to bend right. the pole and and it worked <laughs> yeah, yeah I didn't yeah. even get rejected I, I bent <laughs> the pole it was great um, I ended up jumping like 12 feet at a practice bar okay and this was the summer after freshman year <laughs> yeah this is just like a couple weeks after okay. a week or two after my last meet okay. where I cleared 9-6 yeah well <laughs> so I mean you bring up a, I think a couple interesting points I think I think one, you know, like you said, like you didn't bend the pole as a freshman, you know, like, and sure, it was weeks later and you started to bend the pole after the season. But, you know, I think one thing that people take for granted is the physical development of, especially male athletes. I mean, you know, boys are, you know, going through puberty in high school. You see a freshman boy and then you compare a picture of him as a senior four years later, it's like, doesn't even look like the same human being, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that when they first start out pole vaulting, there might be almost too much emphasis put on bending the pole instead of teaching, like, skills. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, are you teaching the, the athlete how to hold the pole properly, how to run, how to jump up off the ground, how to move the pole, how to swing, you know? It's like these are things that really need to be addressed because once you get enough speed, because what you essentially get in that summer practice, I mean, if you think about it, probably one got faster through the whole spring season you know what I mean and now we're even a couple weeks into the summer and like you said you just move to the appropriate step and grip and boom pole starts bending you know what I mean which that I mean that changes the dynamic completely but I I just I feel like sometimes people have a backwards mentality it's almost like there's two schools of thought you're either teaching skills you know how to run how to jump how to plant the pole swing and then eventually the pole bends or you have the school of thought where it's like, okay, we got to get this kid to bend the pole first, then I can teach them how to pull pole. Right. And I kind of I feel like that's a backwards mentality. I mean, looking back at the process, I mean, and knowing what you know now, I mean, <laughs> you almost like laughed to yourself about what those early days were like. <laughs> well, I was actually pretty blessed with uh, the coaches I did have because they were earlier on in the season, they were very regular and they made it, they... I had, like, two coaches. One was Drew Kazmierzak, and the other, I forget, his, his name was Brian something. But they were just both former falters at my high school yeah, yeah. who jumped, like, 14 feet and 15 feet. Yeah, yeah. And um, they they really had a good starting point with beginner pole vaulters, just teaching the pole drop okay. and the rhythm of, of, like, the last few steps. And we did right, so right, many right. drills. And That's like, all those drills getting ingrained into me just to get down the, the rhythm of those last few steps and yeah. actually dropping the pole and, and taking off. That was huge. Um, and that's, even though I was straight pulling that entire time, it was such, it made such a difference later on just to have at least that timing. That down. background. Yeah. 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 Well, because I right. felt like I did more drills and any other events on the entire track team. Right, and it's like, and that's the thing, so once you do that kind of like, drilling, you know what I mean, you have that foundation, now once actually the pole does bend, you're already doing things properly, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I listen to, obviously, a lot of Joe Rogan podcasts, I know you know, um, and he talks about a lot of times, like, in like, the, the sport of like, jujitsu. He goes, you know, the really the best jujitsu gyms are doing like eighty percent drills, twenty percent rolling. Rolling is like them sparring; they're actually like trying to like beat one another and get someone to tap. But it's like eighty percent drilling, twenty percent rolling. The bad jujitsu gyms are eighty percent rolling, twenty percent drilling. And it's interesting. I think sometimes as an athlete, you might want to just like do full vaults. Like, let me go back to my seven. Let me do full jump and. You'd like the 80% like jumping, 20% drilling. When pole vault, just like jujitsu, if you want to really ingrain the right movements, uh, the right rhythms, you know, it's like you have to drill a lot. It's I think I think yeah. it's super super key. You know. Yeah. So now, what happened the rest of high school? I mean, how, how do you end up at Cornell? How do you end up being a 17 plus guy? Take us through the transition through high school. So you jump 12 the summer after freshman year, right? 
Right. And then sophomore year, after I'd already known how to bend a pole, I hit 14-3. Wow. That's big in this year. Uh, in Indiana, there's no indoor season. So okay. only an outdoor season. That's Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a limited amount of time involved compared to some other high schools and state yeah, yeah, in other yeah. states. Um, and then junior year, I hit 15 feet, which is apparently a recruiting standard for uh, some D1 schools. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And that's, that's what got me recruited in Cornell, is just 15 feet by the end of your junior year. And then senior year, I hit 15-11. Okay. Because the standards maxed out. Yeah. At 15-11, that particular meet. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I, I think that's always a, a cool feeling if you jump as high as the standards can go that day. Like, yeah. you couldn't have done anything yeah. more. Well, they, they did, if you made an adjustment to them, you, like, flipped them around and reattached. Yeah, but by the time, yeah. it took It took, like, 45 minutes to do yeah. that, but, yeah, I, my attempts at, I forget what I put it to, 16-3 or something, were just a lot worse. Yeah, that's the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like also in scenarios like that, I mean, you know, one, I feel like, man, I can't tell you how many times I see, like, a pole vaulter who maybe they want to be, and they either don't rest enough between jumps, or if, like, the measuring of bar takes too long or whatever, the person doesn't really warm up, right. and then everything's off, you know? I mean, I feel like that's, like, a common, you know, common issue. Um, and then the other thing, and, you know, I mean, I hate to always bring up like the mental side of it but it's like if you have no adrenaline left and you're not high you know what I mean like you're not fucking pumped up and you're like okay I'm ready to go you know it's like if that moment passed it's like uh probably just better off to stop I mean there's no there's no more famous like pull fail after a, a big PR than Renault's world record I mean he breaks the world record yeah and then tries one more time, and it's like rejected twenty five feet back. It's like, and, you know, maybe and it's, his ankle. Yeah, yeah, it's like maybe it's better to shut it down. You got a big PR, the adrenaline is gone. Just shut it down, maybe. You know. Yeah. I mean, how do you uh, how do you feel about that? Like, let's say, I mean, we're on we're on our way to Swarthmore. Imagine you hit eighteen today. <laughs> Super pumped. You're running around. Do we jump another time? Put it a little higher, or shut it down. It would it would definitely depend on on the level of adrenaline I'm feeling. Because <laughs> my my uh, I did five years at Cornell, so my fifth year, towards the end, um, I was doing better, and I hit at the IC4A meet at Princeton outdoor season. So it was like one of my last meets. I hit 17 four and a half, and I just I knew that. I, I didn't have as much adrenaline left, so I just cut it off. I didn't even take another attempt. Yeah, yeah. And Craig Hunter um, had beat me on attempts, so I, oh. he, he cleared it. It was 5 meters 30. He cleared a first attempt, I cleared a second attempt, or it might have been whatever. He cleared a one more yeah, attempt yeah. earlier than me, so he was winning on attempts, and I just I didn't even want to take another jump at the next bar because I had, like, hamstring injuries and quad injuries from the previous season, and I knew that the more jumps I took, the higher risk it would have been to re-injure them. And I also felt that the adrenaline um, was uh, keeling off a little bit. So yeah, yeah. I definitely felt that I shouldn't take another jump. Yeah. That's, I, I sacrificed a potential win by not taking another jump. Yeah. And well, I, I mean, look, I think sometimes you got to be smart. You know, you got to play smart. And um, speaking of adrenaline, I was talking about this the other day. It was so funny. I remember reading something where Sergei Bobka, you know, he would do a lot of massage therapy and stuff like that. And so he had found out that there are certain pressure points you have in your body where if you press on them, adrenaline will release. But apparently he would, like, rub those pressure points so hard that he would, like, break skin and bleed. Wow. And then, I mean, I don't know if you know, but, like, he was very famous for screaming at the back of the runway before he went. Like, yeah. could you imagine seeing this guy, like, he's freaking, like, bleeding, trying to get adrenaline out, <laughs> and then, like, screaming in the back of the runway. It's, like, very different to, like, today where we see, like, you know, Sam Kendricks and some of those guys, like, hugging and high-fiving each other. It's, like, I don't think you're walking over to Bobby to give him a high-five <laughs> or a hug after he clears the bar, you know? 
Yeah, I've heard Boopka talk about um, um, his screaming a bit, and he was saying that he didn't used to scream when he was younger, but as he like got older and older, you know, he was evolving into 35, right? Right, right, he right. Would, he would like scream more and more to try to like really pump have, himself, yeah, yeah, pump himself, himself up, up just for that that next jump. Well, I, you really need that when you're when you're up at that level. Well, I think also the thing that it's like it's like the perspective of time, right? If you're that young vaulter, like going back to your freshman sophomore year, you're just man, you must have been like so excited every practice, right? You're like, oh my god, I get to pole vault today, right? Yeah. But it's like when you've done something long enough, it's like people talk about like motivation is great, but motivation fades. It's consistency, you know, dedication, you know, discipline that matters. So it's like, look, like you want to be a true professional, you want to really jump high. I think it's like one of those things like you got to keep showing up every day. You got to do your work. And even in, in those days that you don't want to go, like you figure out how to pump yourself up and get down the runway. And so it's like if you got to scream a little bit back there, you got to slap your you slap your quads a little bit, whatever you got to do, get yourself going. You know, I mean, we we have a masters vaulter, and he's been on the the podcast before. He he's the the guy who started USPVA, Mark Cortazzo. I mean, Mark is now fifty, and you know he's still vaulting. Mark is famous for screaming on the back of the runway. You know, he's trying to pump himself up and. He's also trying to have a good time. You know? Yeah. And he's also, like, regularly vaulting at a PR bar. He's still... Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's, like, he's he's still competitive yeah, with yeah. himself. Right. Sure. So, I mean, I think that's one of those things. You know, it's like, look, every time I work out, I don't, I'm not, like, super pumped to get in the squat rack, but I got to I gotta get myself <laughs> through it one way or another, you know? Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you, you know, you jump that senior year, you end up at Cornell, um, how about this? And I know we've talked about this a little bit. Can you talk maybe about the difference in training from high school versus the training you did at Cornell, the physical training? Like, let's forget about even football for a second. And for those of you that don't know, right, what did you split in the 400 and the 4x4 in high school? Um, that, that same day, I jumped 15-11 in high school. I hit a 48-5-7 in the 4x4. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, look, for those of you listening, you know, and I'm sure everybody knows Mondo runs like a 10-4 in the 100. Uh, I think uh, Renault has run a 6-6 in the 60. Guys, speed is important. Speed is important. And if you don't naturally have that speed, hey, you you got to do some strength and conditioning. But talk about that aspect, the strength and conditioning in high school versus college. What were some of the changes, you know? Let's see. There's definitely a much heavier load in college. Uh, coach Nathan Taylor was the head coach at Cornell while I was there, and he's um, he really emphasized running technique. Like no one had ever taught me how to run before, and and it, like in high school, uh, it felt like everyone just kind of figuring it out on their own. I didn't really train with the sprinters, so I, I'm sure the sprinters on my high school team got more. Uh, technical cues than I did because yeah. <laughs> I don't only practice with the vaulters, but right. But yeah, actually reteaching yourself how to run and how the uh, the cycle works from like leg to leg and dorsiflexion and and the high knee keeping everything out in front of you instead of behind yeah, you, like side. Yeah, yeah, it was it was quite a change. Like I was a very backside type of runner, and and that that all changed when I went to Cornell and, and worked with Coach Taylor, and and everything became a lot more frontside. And I still struggle with it. Um, I'll still like if I'm tired or not really focused, I'll still resort to uh, some backside stuff. Yeah. in a vault and it looks terrible and I end up not being able to jump up and I take a big hit at the takeoff but but I just you know that's just a big sign that I, on the next jump I take I need to get everything out front side and and that that solves a lot of issues yeah well, um, well one one thing you know I'll chime in I, I know when you first started coming to the club and we'd have you know conversations about training or technique I mean the one thing that I always noticed over the years was like you know, Coach Taylor and even Coach uh, Fred Samara of Princeton, you know, those guys are not known as being, like, pole vault coaches. You know what I mean? Like, they're not in the pole vault culture. But yet, these guys consistently would get people 
have huge PRs oh, yeah. and, and bust through so much. I think one, because of the physical training and two, just the, the runway work. I mean, I know, I, I've seen Fred Samara, you know, really break down people's runs, and I'm sure Coach Taylor did the same. And it's like, we keep forgetting the football. It's like, dude, what is it, like 80% of your, your product comes from the runway. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you can get someone to go from backside to frontside running mechanics, for those of you that don't know, what tends to happen, if you get backside, your hips tilt down, and you can't really engage your glutes enough, and you kind of all just go hamstring. Whereas if you get front side, you know, knee and foot out front, keep your hips up. Now you got the whole posterior chain working. You got a lot more muscle behind your your, your stride, and, and you can really open up. Um, just you know, a quick number. You know, people think about speed, and I think they look at foot speed a lot. You know, and when you run backside, you can kind of get a little bit better frequency. It looks like what people don't realize is that the strides get too choppy, right? And um, so. When the strides get choppy, you actually slow down because yeah. it's stride frequency times stride length. There's no better example than Usain Bolt. The average guy at the Olympics, right, that competes against Usain Bolt, they're taking about 45 to 47 strides in the 100 meters. Usain Bolt takes 41. That's why he's the world record holder. It's, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but that's that's what it comes down to. So if you can open up your stride, I mean, you're gonna get huge, huge results on the runway. You can't open up your stride in a detrimental way. Well, right. You don't want to overstride. Yeah. You don't want to slow down your frequency too much. I mean, yeah. that's that's where I feel like a little bit of the art of coaching comes in. Like you got to really watch, you know. But yeah. so so he worked on your running mechanics. What what else, what else did Coach Taylor do with you that was you know instrumental in your your progress at Cornell? Because you get in there at fifteen eleven. What did you leave Cornell with your PR? Seventeen four and a half. Okay. So what, what else was there that you feel like was a big part of your progress? Yeah, he really just focused mostly on the, the run and the plants. Plant was the biggest thing after the run. You know, once you get up to a decent amount of speed, um, it was all in the plant. And he, I remember a specific occasion where he said to me, like, listen, I don't really care what you do in the air. <laughs> I know you can figure that part out on your own. I don't need to, like, tell you how to do that. But, but what I'm going to focus I, on is the plant, and we can make that a lot better. Yeah. By the way, Pete is uh, famous for doing, like, huff rolls over, like, five meter plus bars. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a rough year, man. <laughs> but, okay, so so he focused on the run and take up. What about the training? Like, did you lift more or less at Cornell? Like, what kind of lifts did you do? Take us through that. And take us even, you know, how often did you guys sprint? Like, take us through the average week at Cornell when you were training. <laughs> it was definitely heavy, and it makes a lot of sense why I've had shin splints for, like, 16 years of my life because of the load. But, you know, it's always um, just a battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, for regiment at Cornell, look kind of like this. Uh, Monday, we would vault, usually do full runs. Okay. And then, after vaulting, we would do a sprint workout. It was usually something like, like, 150s. Okay. Um, it might be three or four of them. And okay. then we would lift, and lifting it always involved uh, power cleans, full squats, um, and pull-ups as well as hamstring curls. No bench press? No bench. Come on, man. You have that. <laughs> I, I think we had bench on Tuesdays. Right. And then Tuesdays we would vault again, uh, but it would be a shorter run because we just did fulls on right. Monday. Yeah, you also sprinted. Yeah, and then we do more 150s after vaulting. Right. Now, as far as the 150s, right, because you're doing back-to-back days, are they all out? Are they supposed to be a certain no. percentage? What, no, what percentage of your... They're like 85 90%. On both days? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They would be, uh, I think, the, the usual time we were supposed to hit was like 20 seconds for a 150. Okay. Um, and then, after vaulting on Tuesdays... We would, uh, yeah, vaulting in 150s on Tuesdays, and then we would lift again, and it would be, it would be 
could be something like uh, front squats, uh, full snatches, uh, okay. power snatches from the ground. Um, and, and I think bench was usually in there. And then Wednesdays would be more of a rest day with just core. Okay. And no vaulting, no lifting, no sprint workouts. It's just like uh, 500 sets of abs, 500 reps of yeah, abs, yeah, 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 yeah. something like that. And then Thursday would be another vault day, but it'd be a, wow. a smaller day. Okay. Short approach. And we, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we usually bring out the hump, which okay. is like a, a, a jump box. Yeah, it's like, that's for, like curved. People, yeah, people curved have probably seen it. Yeah. yeah, it's like a fiberglass, like kind of half circle thing with some track surface on top of it. Right. Um, yeah, we called it the hump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you put that at your takeoff step and jump off of that and it just made it easier to get a jump off the ground and uh, I feel like it might have been overused a little bit by Cornell Walters during my time there because a lot of people started to use it as like a as you know it felt like they couldn't jump without it well right in practice so I I feel like stuff like that is definitely useful I, I think one I don't think it's a big deal to be able to get on your competition pole in practice because I feel like that's why some people use it. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you know, like, it helps you learn how to jump up better. I think it's great. I think also if you look at it as like, okay, this is something different. This is a different drill. We are jumping with this tool. You know, what's your best with this tool? But then you have to be able to take it away and then also still work with other drills and other tools. You know. Um, but I think anytime anything is overused, it's kind of detrimental sometimes. Because, like you said, if you get a vaulter that's like, well, I can't jump without this. Well, there's a problem because you can't use that in competition, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it definitely was helpful for getting on bigger poles. Um, it, it did change a lot about the uh, the feeling of, of off the ground and up in the air. Because it was just a completely different angle than, than right. what you get from taking off the ground. The, the other thing, think about this. The reason that I feel like, I think the, the, the ramp that you would use or sometimes people jump off of boxes or stuff like that, you have to lift your foot up so your knee is bent so you can actually go heel toe and then push off the ground and jump yeah. as if you did a good penultimate. The only issue comes is if you're like really driving your, your knee up for that last step when you don't have a ramp, now you're going to stomp on the ground it's going to be a real flat takeoff. So that's where it's like, it could be a little bit lost in translation there of like why the jump up is better on the ramp. I mean, one, you're higher off the ground, but two, you actually are using your leg properly and able to engage more muscle. You know what I mean? When you jump. Yeah. And then Thursday, um, I think, I don't think a sprint workout would be included, but yeah, you know, there's always hurdle mobility and stuff like yeah, that thrown yeah, in yeah. there, as well as running drills with uh, working on front side mechanics. Uh, Thursday, we would then lift again, um, and I feel like there's dumbbell snatch jumps in there, okay. as well as um, some other lifts that I'm forgetting, I'm sure. Um, and then Friday would be uh, independent if we had a meet that weekend for fall conditioning on Friday we would do stadiums which is yeah, just sprinting yeah, stairs, yeah yeah but but there's a bit of a, a difference than just running up we would do um, hopping steps okay, like so right would, leg yeah. hop right. how many steps you can skip as if like it's a triple yeah, jump workout right, 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 right. and then left leg hop all the way up and then it would be um, right left, right, left, but hopping is as much as you can skip, and then sprint up, and that would be one set, that would be like five sets of that, it's yeah, like yeah. a decent amount of stadiums, and then we were expected to lift either Friday or Saturday, Okay, so we would lift if four times a week. If you had a meet though, Friday, I'm guessing, would just be a rest yeah, day. Yeah, we had a meet on Saturday, Friday would just be pure rest, and uh, do, do just like a... a a dynamic warm-up to get the blood flowing. Right, so now if Saturday you had a meet, right, obviously that's full balls, you're going from full approach, yep. would now Monday still be a full approach day? Yeah, it would. Yeah, so like, I, you know, again, I mean, I think there's a lot of good stuff 
that I feel like you did at Cornell, you know what I mean? I think lifting is important, the sprints are important, um, but like I can, you alluded to this earlier, I think the volume is so much, yeah. and I feel like the vaulting is not seen as a workout in and of itself, which it is, right? Because every time you vault, right, you're sprinting down the runway full speed. So you're doing a bunch of these like 30 meter sprints, right? It's like, I mean, on average, what would you say? Like, what did most people, how many jumps would they take out of practice? Oh, at least 15 to 20. Right. So it's like you're doing 15 to 20, 30 meter sprints. And then at the end of it, you know, doing an upper body workout because you're, you're swinging and vaulting up and over your hand grip and pushing off, you know? So it's like, that's a lot. And now you're doing those 150s and, and then you're going to the weight room and it's like, I mean, looking at it and I mean, I think you thinking about it now, knowing what you know now, it's like, wow, that Tuesday should have been a recovery day. You know what I mean? It should, it should have been something light, like maybe go 15 minutes on the bike, do your abs, you know what I mean? Like do stuff like that. You know, it's just a lot to have to like back that up with more jumping, more sprinting, you know what I mean? Even if it is short, you know? Um, and, and, you know, we've talked a lot. Um, for those of you that don't know, Charlie Francis, right? Sprint coach in the 80s had Ben Johnson, who, you know, got caught for steroids. But Charlie Francis talked a lot about how, you know, in the 80s, it was very, very famous for, for you know, track runners to be overworked. They would have such a high volume. They always experience injuries. And typically, a lot of people would PR coming off of an injury because they'd have a week or two of rest and then they come back to the to the beat and boom, huge PR, which, I mean, talk about that. Is that something that sounds familiar to you? Yeah, that's exactly what happens my, uh, my fifth year. I had pulled my uh, quad like in early January and then I didn't, I couldn't really compete out of meat until the end of the indoor season. Okay. And... And I competed at our conference meet, the Ivy League conference, which is called HEPS. Yeah. Um, and didn't really have a good meet uh, because of just not being in, in practice, you know, not being able to practice for a yeah. while. And then the next week was uh, the IC4A meet, which I hit 525, uh, which is 17-2 and three quarters. And how big of a PR was that for you? That was, uh, it was like a inch PR. Okay. Three or four yeah. inch PR. Yeah, yeah. And and then a similar thing happened in the outdoor season where I pulled my hamstring and yeah. couldn't really compete at meets throughout most of the outdoor season. I, at some point I re-injured it. <laughs> yeah. And then when it came down to the end of the season I had another pretty bad meet at HEPS and at the IC4A meet I hit Five meters thirty, which is seventeen four and a half. And yeah, that, was, yeah. that was my college PR, and that was Cornell school record. Yeah. So at, at the time I left Cornell, I had the uh, indoor and outdoor school record. Yeah, and so it's pretty crazy. It's like, I mean, look, like I think that volume of work that you were doing is obviously a big reason why you were able to go from fifteen eleven to to seventeen uh, four. You know. Yeah. But at the same time, it was almost too much, and that's why it's like, I mean, imagine if you didn't get injured, if you were just achy and hurting all the time, you would have just slept through those beats. You actually were very fortunate that you did get a little bit of an injury that gave you a little bit of a break, and so now you were able to, like, be fresh, you know, and actually jump at full blast, you know? Because I feel like in the schedule that you described, that weekly schedule, it's like, None of those days are you 100%. None of those days are you super sharp. It's like everything is kind of like this vanilla, you know what I mean? Like just base level. Yeah. And then take us through how you jumped 17.9. Because like what would your average training week be like when you jumped 17.9 post-collegiate? So I jumped. I graduated Cornell in 2014. And uh, in 20, 2015, kind of an adjustment year. I was still vaulting, but just trying to find post-collegiate meets, and I think I was over 17 feet once throughout 2015, and then 2016 came, and and uh, through 2015 and 2016, I was really just focusing on meets, because I'd never really 
been able to do that in college. Yeah. College always felt like I was focusing on training and overworking my body. Yeah. Um, but through those years that I wasn't in college, uh, I was able to allow myself to have a lot more rest. And, you know, at the time I felt like I was just being lazy because it wasn't what I was used to yeah, to yeah. only work out maybe twice a week instead right, of right. the usual four or five times. Yeah, yeah. And then have a meet. And the meets just felt a lot better. Yeah. Um, and I ended up hitting 17. I had five meters 40 at Princeton Larry Ellis meet, uh, which is pretty early in the outdoor season or kind of midway through the outdoor season, which is that's 17, eight and a half. And then, and then uh, about a month later, I hit 541, which is 17.9 yeah. um, at like another small meet in New Jersey. And, and yeah, it just felt a lot better to be so well rested for a competition. It felt amazing to have like that much energy and feel that good and have my central nervous system be so well rested. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't understand in the pole vault. Like, the pole vault is such an explosive event, and it's so central nervous system intense. And so when you do, a, like, a full vault from a full approach, you know, that's really taxing on your central nervous system. And I, I believe you need something like, uh, it's 72 hours rest, you know, to do that again, you know. So the thing is, like, what ends up happening, and, like, look, we, like we started off in this podcast, you know, People love to bubble. So when you start jumping, what do you always want to do? Uh, you want to jump every day if you can. You want to keep jumping? Yeah. So I, I feel like even at the club, it's funny. Like a lot of the kids, like they're, at my club, kids either come in once, twice, or three times a week, right? And even the kids are coming in like once and twice, but even the three times a week kids, they're jumping and lifting on those those days they come in. So three day a week kids are, are lifting, but they're only doing one full approach day. They're doing a drill day and then like a medium approach day and in between three to five laps, you know. Um, but they're not doing full approach every day. But what always happens when outdoors rolls around is kids are excited. They want to jump more. Now they have access to their high school kids sometimes. And now they're jumping every day, which some of those kids end up PR very early in outdoors. But by mid to late outdoors, they are burnt out. Like they're yeah. done. They can't jump anymore. Because they've never allowed their central nervous system to recover, and they just keep trying to do it again, do it again, do it again. And now you're starting to feel foggy. This is where people start to get stood up. They start running through. They can't get on their poles. And then we all become, quote-unquote, mental when this is really just a, a, a symptom of overworking, you know, and your central nervous system is just fried, you know. So it's something that's super important that I think, again, even in the track world, I think... It's very easy to see a guy run a 400-meter rep and be like, wow, okay, that guy's working. Look, he almost threw up. And then you watch a pole vaulter take a jump, and you're like, well, he's not throwing up. That looks easy, you know? But it's like that's still that's still taxing, you know? And I feel like people don't understand that because, one, it's so much fun, and, two, it doesn't feel hard. You're invigorated with every jump that you take, you know? Um, but, like, we, again, we mentioned both I mean, Look, guys, he was getting older, is like trying to hit those pressure points, get a little bit more adrenaline, screaming on the back of the runway, trying to get himself going. It, it definitely is like a, a taxing event, especially for your central nervous system. Uh, yeah, and that's another thing I forgot to mention was that in college I always ran from an eight step, but uh, those post collegiate years I actually moved into a seven step. So moving in a step and then PRing by five inches, that's that kind of shows. How how important it is to have a rested central nervous system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and even another point. I mean, one, I think you, you should be able to do an eight, but it brings in the point. It's like if you are running from an approach that is not easy for you to manage, like you have to try really hard. That's probably not the best bet. You want to be at an approach that it doesn't have to. You don't have to run perfectly to take off. It's like you want to be at an approach that you can manage and you can. That approach every single time to actually pole vault, you know. Whereas I think, you know, in the pole vault community, we're always like, well, if I add another left, I'll be faster. Maybe. But maybe. Maybe you'll be a lot more flat at the takeoff, yeah. and the vault's gonna end up being worse. Yeah. Which is, tends to be 
the case with me, too. Yeah. <laughs> or even, like, look, you're a fast guy, but for some people, if they go back a left, they might actually slow down before they get to takeoff. And that that's another problem, you know? Yeah. Um, talk about... Now, I mean, like, look, like, you're obviously very passionate about the pole vault. I mean, you're still jumping, you know, it's this many years after you graduated college. Talk about the difficulty in one, you know, maybe finding places to train and talk about the difficulty of getting into meets, you know? Yeah, so I, uh, I live in Manhattan and I don't have a car. I uh, rely heavily on the public transit systems around New York and New Jersey area. Uh, so it is, it's pretty annoying to find a meet that actually allows open competitors because you have to rely 100% on college meets and right. and a lot of college meet directors and uh, the, the, whoever is putting on a meet just a lot of times only wants college competitors at their meet and right. it's it feels like it's pretty rare to find a meet where they'll allow clubs or and unattached athletes compete at the meet and that's that's what I need so a lot of times I'm reaching out to a college coach and, like, begging to be allowed to compete at their meet. Right, right, right. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough, tough life for a post-collegiate track athlete yeah. to, to try to find some meets. Because there's, you know, there's USATF meets. There might be some other meets out there that, that are, like, not connected to any governing bodies but most of the meets that are available to you are going to be college meets and it's 100% on the uh, that college meet director or that college coach on whether or not he's going to let you in and so here's the thing let's talk this I think this is a perfect point for me to bring this up let's talk the economics of track I think what a lot of pole people don't realize is the economics track don't work for pole right so it's like think about the 200 meters it takes roughly 30 seconds for each heat of the 200 to go off if you have an eight lane track if eight competitors go now 30 seconds later another eight go now 30 seconds later another eight go now 30 seconds later another eight go you can have so many heats of the 200 go within a short amount of time each of those athletes, and look, we're all accustomed. We're all accustomed to like entry fees about twenty five dollars, right? Yeah. Well, they can make a lot of money on the track, not on the field events. I mean, think about pole. I mean, if you if you have fifty competitors, right? Fifty competitors at twenty five dollars. That's only twelve hundred dollars, and fifty is a lot. That competition is going to take a long time. Yeah. Let's talk even further. Let's talk indoor track for a second. If a college or a meet director is renting out the armory, they have an allotted amount of time that they can run the meet. Now, for those of you that don't know, I mean, I think the, the rentals are about like 10, 15 grand to rent the armory or, or Staten Island, right? And this is our, in our area. If they go over on time, they have to pay penalties, thousands of dollars in penalties. So now, if you have 50 pole bolters, that's only bringing you in $1,200. Whereas the whole meet itself might be bringing you in $40,000. So as a meet director, I mean, I don't know, guys. Do you want 50 pole vaulters? You might have to pay like $2,000 in penalties, and you're only getting $1,200. Yeah. It just doesn't make economical sense to allow that many pole vaulters. And so hence the issue where, one, first come, first serve. How are they making their money off of meets? It's off of colleges because colleges are paying $700,000 entry fees to enter the meet to bring their team. So one, they got to make sure that the college athletes get to compete because that's what the head coach wants that is entering the whole team. Your $25 entry as as an unattached athlete is nothing. They don't even care. I mean, sometimes, you know, know, Pete will go to me and, and it'll be Pete, a couple other unattached athletes that I have. And because I know the coach, they allow them in. And half the time, they're like, ah, oh, don't worry about paying. 
Because to them, what's 25 bucks? It's not a big deal. Yeah. You know? And keep this in mind. Some of these people that run the meets aren't even actually making the money. It's just they, they've got to at least break even at the meet. And anything else goes into their fundraising account for their team. So th- this is why a lot of times, like, you can't find meets. This is, and, and this is why the following thing that I'm going to say, as pole vault coaches, as pole vaulting clubs, we need to start to run more events. And we need to ha- have events that, one, make economic sense, right? Even for me, I mean, if I have a fun event, right, like at Pole Vault Club Championships, which I mentioned in the opening, you know, we're going to have a DJ, we have an announcer, there's going to be a food truck, you know, it's lot of fun it's a blast i have to have a lot of workers to have this run smoothly i need three people per pit we have two pits going three people per pit i've got to rotate crews to keep them fresh and awake and energized right so i probably need no no less than 12 people to run the pits then i need about another six people to run the registration tables right these are all people that have to be paid for their time i mean i gotta pay each of these people about a hundred dollars for the day right now, you think about the Popo event, it can't be $25. Like, this year we're charging $45, and I still think it's an amazing value at $45, and you could argue that I should charge more, probably. But at $45, it's amazing value, right? The winners of the high school and open sections get championship belts, right? There's prize money for the open people, you know? It's, it's amazing. But at $25, it doesn't make sense. It makes, again, it makes sense on the track. You could have so many more people competing. That's why it makes sense on the track. But we have to ask pole vault people, one, put on the events that pole vaulters want to go to. Make it fun. Make it exciting. Because, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, I'm sure, Pete, you've been there. You're jumping pretty high. And sometimes it's almost like the official's annoyed that you're, you're clearing bars because they want to get out of there, you know? Yeah, most of the time the people who are annoyed are the, the women are waiting for me to finish to jump right after me and they're like come on we want to leave too sure yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's usually the case where the higher i jump the longer people the have competition to stay, yeah, yeah. takes and and yeah that's that's definitely an annoyance for officials who are just trying to go home <laughs> right well and i and i think like look like a lot of times you know a lot of times we get great officials. There's some great pole officials out there. But sometimes you're getting an official that's not that familiar with pole And in their mind, yeah, you being the last guy jumping is like why they're staying late. Yeah. What they're not seeing is like, no, it's really just a reflection of the number of people competing and how fast you can put the crossbar up. I mean, no better example than last week. I was at a, a meet run by great officials. They had 53 high school girls competing at this meet. They were done in three hours. One of, yeah, one of my other coaches was at a high school meet that had less than 20 girls competing. That meet also took three hours. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous to me. Like, I mean, that's why at Pole Vault Club Championships, you see me. It's like the people put up the crossbars, they got to hustle. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's why it's like you got to choose those people carefully. They got to know what they're doing. They got to be light on their feet. They got to be able to move, you know? I don't really care if they've read the whole rule book. They, their job for the day is to put the crossbar up. They don't need to be someone that's like some master official that's like been experienced. they got to put the crossbar up. They're not making any calls. Now, the person who's actually officiating, sure, maybe that person has to be a little bit more knowledgeable, you know? But it's like, it's unbelievable to me. And it's like, I was just like, I remember being at that meet. I'm like, wow, there's 53 girls. Like, we're never getting out of here. And those officials just did an amazing, amazing job, you know. Uh, but that that's kind of the thing that, that kills me because I feel like pole vaulting could be a lot more popular, you know. It's just that people don't have access. I mean, before you even came to the club, how did you keep jumping? What was one of your options? I uh, volunteer coached at Manhattan College, and Coach Mecca was there yeah. at that time, and he was very welcoming to me like the uh the deal we kind of had worked out was i would help coach the vaulters and be at meets to help coach the vaulters because because coach mecco was coaching all the field events as and in exchange for that i would get to use his facility to practice at and right. and use poles um 
and that was that was like all I really wanted and it was very very helpful to keep me vaulting and and I I don't know if I've if I would have reached out to you in those years yeah, yeah, yeah. if I didn't have Manhattan College but right. but yeah that I only I, I never viewed myself as a good coach so I uh, <laughs> I quickly sure okay. I gave up that life after a couple of years and uh, reached out to Bronco and got hooked up with Apex and it's a uh, it's a bit more troublesome to get to from Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely worth it to get out there to Jersey and get some practice in. And, and uh, Bronco obviously drives me to a lot of meets like we're going to right now. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, you know, you bring up a couple things. I think a lot of people, the only way or the only option that they can keep competing is to coach somewhere. Yeah. And not everybody wants to coach. And it's like, think about that. That's a big burden, right? Like if, if someone came up to me and was like, Hey Bronco, um, you could, you could do this thing called CrossFit, but you also have to coach in order to do it. I'd be like, nah, I'm good. You know, or if I walked into an LA fitness, I just wanted to work out, but they're like, Oh no, no, no. But to work out here, you, you have to, you have to train other people. I'm like, well, I don't want to train. I just want to get in, get my workout in and leave. Yeah. Yeah. When, you you're, know? when you're trying to focus on yourself, it's, it's a lot harder yeah, yeah, yeah. to try to focus on somebody else and getting making them better. Right, and so it's like it's it's act it's adding a layer of, of friction, you know. Then, like you said, I mean, okay, Apex is far for you. It's a tough commute. You don't have a car, you know. But imagine if there was a Pulbleton Club in Manhattan. You know what I mean? It's so much easier for you. You could probably even get more training in. What yeah. people don't realize with Pulbleton is like one of our biggest things is access. People can't get into pole vaulting unless they have access. And the only place people have access is at their high schools or at their college. And the problem comes when you're not part of that. And then even at, a, at the high school level, I can't tell you how many kids tell me. It's like they only have access to their mats for like a month and a half, three months out of the year. How, how like you brought it up, like Indiana didn't have indoor track and it didn't have middle school uh, pole vaulting. So you had only a short period of time to really try pole vaulting and get any good at it, you know? It's like, how many kids have that kind of experience or less? You know, imagine only having, you know, three months for four years. I mean, oh my goodness. You're only competing for a full year in pole vaulting. You only have one year of pole vaulting, you know? Which I, I can't tell you guys. Like, I don't know, like a recent uh, video I posted on Instagram was uh, Sydney Shannon. She jumped 11-4, right? And I put up a YouTube video of like that mean how I like made adjustments. Sydney has been jumping with me since the summer of seventh grade. This is why this five foot one tall girl is jumping eleven four because she's put in a lot of time, you know. And even strength and conditioning. I mean, this girl has single leg squat at two thirty five. She's benched one thirty five. You know, these are big numbers for a high school girl. And it's like that's because she's doing it year round for this many years. If most people only jump for 12 months out of four years of high school. How high are you really going to jump? How many people slip through the cracks? You know, just imagine you, you were lucky you had a couple former vaulters helping out and they, they taught you those drills, you know? What if you didn't have them? Yeah, it would have been uh, tossed in the water without knowing how to swim. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you were also, how about, let, let's even dig deeper into access. You said you were very fortunate your high school had a lot of poles. What about the high school that only has like a 1220, a 1360, and a 1460? Yeah. What does that kid do? <laughs> you know, I, you know, and it's funny, I feel so bad. I, I, I'll get DMs from kids who are, you know, trying to jump higher. And I'm like, dude, you're just, you're just blowing through the pole. You, 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 need, you need a bigger pole. And they're like, I, I don't have anything else. This is the only pole I have. Sorry, and, slow down your run. <laughs> Uh, well, we can make this work. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny. I told a girl to go in from a five to a four, and she yeah. PR'd, you know? Uh, yeah. But, but the thing is, like, that's only going to take you so far. At some point, you need access to poles. And listen, what is a high school kid going to do? I mean, poles are ridiculous, man. Like, I, I don't know, but, like, you know, it's like, I feel like some things are even short-sighted. It's like, dude, poles are $500 plus. Yeah, I still a high school kid can't get buy a pole, and then buying one pole is not going to fix it. Yeah. Like, you need several poles. Yeah, you need, like, at least pole. 10. 
right. percent. And yeah, I, don't, I still, I still don't own a single pole yeah. myself. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, look, that's that's the thing too. If you're running a pole vaulting club, you are trying to give your clients as little friction as possible. Like people come to Apex, they don't need poles. I, I have 200 poles, you know, and, and they they can you know they can rent poles for meets, and we go to the meets, and we go to meets, we bring whatever poles people need. You know, it's like I want people to jump as high as possible. You know, I, I think. You know, it's like, let, let's talk that situation. Pole rentals, too. I, you know, I keep having this idea, and I think about it, and it's like, most people who rent poles, rent poles at like 50 bucks a pop. Well, how many poles is someone going to rent for their meat? Maybe two? So now you're dropping 100 bucks for your meat. And what, what two poles are you going to rent? You're going to rent a small one and a big one. It's going to be a big gap, maybe 15, 20 pounds. Yeah. So let's go through the meat experience. You start jumping, you clear opening bars, start blowing through, you have to try to get on the big pole, now you get stood up, and now you miss PR, now you're pissed off and angry, and you're out of $100. Well, how long is someone going to be a part of this sport? I can go buy a skateboard. I don't need to buy 10 of them. I just buy one skateboard, I skateboard every day. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, yeah. I mean, so why don't you speak about that? Like, what, what, what was your experience, like, you know, when you were at Manhattan, what was the pole situation like? How did you get get the poles to the meets? How did you, you know what I mean? Like, what kind of hoops did you have to jump through? Uh, I usually rented a car, and and I would have to um, get specific access from the coach in order to get into the field house where I could get the poles. And it was this this whole organizational nightmare just to try to get poles out of into my possession, onto the car, to get to a meet, and like, that's just, yeah, a lot of friction there, I would say. Yeah. A lot more friction and, than, and than showing up to a meet where you took the poles <laughs> to the meet for me, and you're already there waiting. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. And and so it's like, that. those are the things that we have to figure out in the pole vault community. It's like, how can we give people less friction? Because if, if there's less friction, more people will be a part of the sport. You know, it's like, I, I mean, like, the pole thing is just huge, and I don't know if pole prices can go down or not, you know, but it's like, if people can get access to poles in a cheaper way, I think a lot more people become involved in the sport, and if a lot more people do this sport, then it will be more popular sport, there will be more competitive opportunities, and then more people will make money in this sport, like, we can maybe actually have professional pole vaulters make a decent living, you know what I mean? Which I think that would be awesome. I mean, like, I, I know these are, like, lofty goals, but it's, like, these are things that I think about because, one, I'm in it for the long haul. And I think that that's that's the thing. It's, like, I, you know, I love this event so much. I, I want to figure this out and make this as accessible as possible so people can do this as long as they like. I think, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, nobody pull votes after college. Well, why? Pete just explained it to you. Dude, if you got to go rent a car... Pray a coach lets you borrow poles yep. and then drive yourself to the meet. Oh, and then if you don't jump high, yeah, well, now you're freaking pissed off. You know, I'll use this example. Imagine this. Uh, you pay a club coach a hundred bucks to coach you at a meet. And then, you know, dad rents you four poles, 50 bucks a pop, so that's another 200 So you paid $300 for the day. And now your son... No heights. Dude, you're running over that coach. You'd be like, dude, what the shit? Like, why did my kid just no height? But, let's say you showed up to the meet and you paid 20 bucks to rent a couple poles. Even if you know I did not, whatever, you know, it happens and that that's that. You're not going to be so pissed off. You're going to be willing to do it again. I mean, look, I, you know people who go into an LA fitness you know it's like if they're paying whatever it is like I don't even know what LA fitness is now 35 bucks 40 bucks a month it's like ah, if you go in you don't have the best squat workout that's okay come back the next day you know but the problem is our price of entry for our sport is so high I mean in high school kids love it I think even like sometimes high school kids they realize you know it's like oh you might know height but that's okay because they're doing it through their school so they don't have to worry about paying but it's like, can we make this as affordable as possible? I think we can, but people have to start getting creative. They have to, they have to start thinking more, you know. And we have to have more, more meets. I mean, 
I think even you talking about Indiana not having indoor track. I mean, just imagine if you had not four state championships that you could have competed in, but eight. <laughs> Maybe you would have jumped higher than 1511. Yeah, I definitely would have jumped higher. Yeah. Just, just that much more practice to have double the amount of, uh, of vault sessions and meets to go to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the, the reps great. are huge. And think about even post-collegially. I think the problem that people have post-collegially is they just they don't get to compete that often. And there's not a lot of meets where there's like a championship atmosphere. You know, you go and it's like maybe like, you know, maybe there's a couple people jump decent. But it's like very laid back atmosphere. And it's like we were talking about adrenaline before. It's like that's not going to get your adrenaline going. You're not going to get freaking pumped up if everybody's like lackadaisical at a competition, you know. It's like, you want to be pumped up, man. You're doing this because it's fun. It's supposed to be exciting, you know? Um, yeah, I I don't know. I just, I think that people need to think about how to how to provide more access to pole vaulting, practice-wise, competition-wise, poles-wise. Because if people have access, we can get more people involved in this sport. And the more people involved in this sport, it, it just... It grows. It allows all these other things to happen. I mean, part of the part of the problem is like, you know, when you think about some of the more popular mobile Instagram accounts, you know, only having like 20, 30,000 people. I mean, that's nothing. You know what I mean? If you imagine like, you know, any UFC fighter has like over 500,000 followers, you know what I mean? Up to a million, you know? Well, that, that means a lot more. Now, if you're like, imagine if you were a pole vaulter and you, you had a million followers, Dude, you can sell t-shirts and make some money. You know, just put your name on a t-shirt and people buy it. But, like, when there's only, like, 20,000 people that follow you, well, maybe only 5% will buy a t-shirt. How much money is that, you know, compared to if you had a million followers, you know? Yeah. So I I just, I, I feel like we got to figure that out. And, and I think about even, like, as far as, like, entry fees for meets and stuff like that. I mean, people do those Spartan races, Right. And those mud runners, they'll pay a hundred bucks to do those. Yeah, those those entry fees are more than that. Yeah, even, even more. Yeah, and people are willing to pay it because it's a fun experience. Well, when you run a pole vault event, you have to make it a fun experience. Yeah. You have to make it. It can't be boring, and you can't be annoyed if the meat is going long. You know what I mean? You gotta make it exciting. You know. Um, I don't know. It's, it's almost always the case where the meat ends up going long. Yeah, yeah. Well, but even if it goes long, it's like you got to make sure that the people working the event try to make it as fun as possible. I mean, that, that was the thing last year at Pulver Club Championship. Yeah, the yeah. guys were jumping so late, but it's like the DJ was still going, the announcer was still going, you know, and there are still there are still some people left in there watching you guys jump who had been done competing for hours, you know. So it was like still cool because we kept the excitement going, you know, and that's, that's really, really critical. Um, yeah. I guess, you know, I mean, one, I wanted to do this podcast with Pete. He's been training um, and, you know, wanted to have him on talk about his experiences because I feel like a lot of people have had similar experiences as you, uh, you know, maybe you started out pole vaulting in high school, you didn't jump so high, then all of a sudden you hit some number, gets you into college, and, and then post-collegially you have very similar experience to a lot of people where it's like it's not easy, you know, it's not easy. And I think that there are ways that we can make it easier as a pole vault community. If you're a coach out there, man, let people jump at, at your high school. If you're if you're coaching in the summer and you do a couple sessions a day, dude, just post it on Instagram. You'd be shocked. Jacob Sanders of Sandstorm, Maryland, last year, basically with no advertising, he, he said he got 35 people to come jump at his at his high school. You know, that's awesome. You know, and if there are some post collegiates in the area that want to keep jumping, let them jump, man. Make it a fun atmosphere. You know, open it up. Who knows? Maybe they'll help you coach or there's something else they can bring back to the club, you know? Um, but I, I feel like those things are the critical things that can help make our event more, more popular. Um, Pete, do you have any last words? Yeah. Um, it just feels like going with that uh, idea of opening up more high schools and letting people jump. It just feels like that there's so many tracks out there that yeah. just go completely unused for yeah. an entire summer. Like, how often does a high school actually use its track right. during during the outdoor track season? That's yeah. it. And then you have this awesome summer season where it could be put to so much use and it just sits there empty, vacant. 
no one's allowed on it. Yeah. And that's, that's just like, that's a tragedy. And the, uh, the pit gets tossed in storage and, and it just sits there unused. It's just like, seems like a, a waste of resources that, that someone could be putting to use. Right. And, and look, I was very fortunate. The high school I coached at, they, they let me run my club there, you know, in the beginning. And I was very fortunate because the business administrator at the school district was a former pole holder. So he was yeah. just like, dude, let me jump and it'll be awesome. I was like, great. <laughs> Did you actually jump? Yeah, yeah. He would come by and jump. It was awesome. That's great. Um, his name's Steve Sia. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, but, you know, it's like, look, maybe the high school you're at, they're going to charge you too much to rent the time, you know, the facility. I know that's right. the case sometimes. Maybe they'll just flat out say no. Ask the next school. You never know. Yeah. Guys, I can't tell you through the club that there's certain high schools, they literally would love to have me coach all summer at, the, at their high school. The head coach has such a great relationship with the athletic department, it would not be an issue. You know, so you have to keep asking. Maybe the high school you're at is not for it, but maybe the town over is, you know? Yeah. And we have to start going to the environments that are that are that are better for us. You know, don't stay at the high school you've been at if you feel like you're you're you know, going against the tide. You know what I mean? If you they keep fighting with you about purchasing poles for the program, or they keep fighting with you about practice times or meets that you go to, but literally across town, you know, on the other on the other end of the county, there's a school that would love to have you and support what you're doing with the kids. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. You got you got to go where. Um, you know what I mean? It's a no-brainer. You, you gotta, you gotta do that. You know? Um, yeah. So, look for everybody listening. Thanks for listening again. Um, you can follow Apex Vaulting on Instagram. It's the real Apex Vaulting. We're also Apex Vaulting on Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter. Um, I'm a little bit lazy on LinkedIn. Also, check out our YouTube channel. Uh, I've been putting up a lot of instructional videos on, on our YouTube channel. It's just Apex Vaulting. Um, and if you have any questions or comments, apexwealthy at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, Pete, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Pro. Should be pretty simple. Yeah. And, yeah, hit me up if you have any questions. Thanks. Okay.